0: Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 27th of July, 2022, and this is episode 265. On this week's Dispatches podcast, I speak to Dr. Andrew Jarbo about his recent book on the Indian Army. This is titled, Indian Soldiers in World War I, Race and Representation in an Imperial War. Andrew spoke to me from his office in Boston, Massachusetts. This book is published by the University of Nebraska Press. Andrew spoke to me from his office in Boston. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in in, in the Indian Army during the Great War? Uh, thank you. Yes, I'm happy to be here, Tom. Um, I'm a, I did my PhD
1: in World History at Northeastern University. I'm an assistant professor at Berkeley College of Music in Boston, Massachusetts, USA. And I'm also a high school history teacher at Match High School also in Boston, Massachusetts. And what got me into the Indian Army during World War I was a photograph, actually. And here I'm going to do a little bit of show and tell if I can. Um, This is is the cover from actually my first book, an edited volume that I did with Richard Fogarty. Um, And I love this photograph. It captures the moment when Indian soldiers first arrived in Marseille, France in October 1914. And what you see here in the picture is you see a group of Indian soldiers marching down the street and they're on their way to the Western Front where things are not going well. And you see this woman here, she appears to be pinning a flower to the lapel of this sepoy. A sepoy is an Indian rifleman. She's pinning a flower to his lapel and like like anyone else wishing him well as he goes off to the front uh, where he and many of his peers are probably gonna meet a very terrible fate. I saw this photograph my first semester in graduate school and was instantly captivated. And I would always, I've always been interested in World War I. I came to grad school knowing I wanted to do something World War I. Um, I was that kid back when, back, way back when I was that kid who when John Keegan's 1998 book on the First World War, when that hit the shelves, I was that kid who made his dad drive him to the local bookstore so that I could buy it and read it within the next week, okay? I, I just loved this stuff. But then I encountered that photograph in graduate school and it was just one of those, wait a minute, what? There were Indians in the trenches? Did did, did I miss something? Did, did I skip that page in Keegan's book? And, and what I uncovered is that no, in fact, I did not skip that page in Keegan's book because, well, they're really not there in many of the books written about the Western Front in World War I. And I thought, wow, this is interesting. There are two things I wanna know. I wanna know who the heck are these guys and what's their story? And then the other thing I wanna know is how come no one's writing about their story? And so I was interested in the story and I was interested in the story about the story. And those sort of two questions are what uh, drove me in this direction.
0: So why write a book on the Indian army?
1: Well, um, I had desired originally I hoped originally I could get away with just writing about Indian troops on the Western Front. And that was the subject of my doctoral dissertation. And I wrote about, you know, these 89,000 or so Indian combatants who deployed to France and fought in the trenches in 1914 and 1915. And I wrote about them in the trenches. And I wrote about them in the hospitals in which they recovered from their wounds. And I wrote about them in the prisoner of war camps in Germany, where many of them waited out the rest of me. And that was the story that I told in my dissertation. And as I started trying to turn this into a book, I realized this story is so much bigger than just what happened in Western and Central Europe. If I'm going to do this story justice, if I'm going to really unpack why this war matters, why these soldiers matter, I need to kind of go go more global. So the book turned into this bigger thing about not just soldiers in France, but Indian soldiers in the Indian army fighting uh, in Mesopotamia and fighting in Palestine and fighting in Egypt and fighting in East Africa and fighting in Gallipoli, fighting all over the world and uncovering how that went, how that unfolded. But then also it became a story about representations of these soldiers representations in mass media and in propaganda propaganda and mass media in in britain mind you but also in india because it turns out on the indian home front anyone and everybody is talking about these guys too and talking about what india's participation in the war might mean for india's place in the empire that's a big and loaded conversation during the war and the more i dug and the more i uncovered i also discovered there's a lot going on here this moment in which Indian troops are deployed to battlefields across the world as part of the British Empire's efforts against its adversaries, this moment unpacks and uh, and reveals a load of anxieties uh, that are sort of endemic to Britain's empire and to its colonial project in South Asia. And so a discussion about race and racism had to be there as well. When I started this, I hoped I could keep it local because wouldn't that just be easier? but, but I realized if I wanted to do this story justice, it had to be bigger. It had to really be a, a global story, because that's what the Indian Army's story is in World War I. It is a global story. It's an imperial story. It's a colonial story. It's one that is about race. It's about representation. It's about propaganda. It is about all these things. And it's very complicated and very messy. Um, but interesting as all hell, and fun as all hell to tell so that's that's why I did this.
0: So let's start at the beginning. What exactly is or was the Indian Army? What was its purpose, size and composition?
1: Okay. so so the Indian Army has been referred to as the British Empire's fire brigade in the east. And that's not an inaccurate description of of what this army does. Right. So so the crown takes over in India in 1858, right after this big uprising in which the British East India Company's soldiers are. And by 1914, the Indian Army is a all-volunteer professional fighting force. It numbers about a quarter of a million men. Um, Most of those men are South Asians drawn from British India, uh, some drawn from independent Nepal, um, some drawn from that sort of border region between Afghanistan and what is now Pakistan, uh, where the United States and the British Army spent much of the last 20 years uh, until very recently. This this is where most of the soldiers are drawn from. So sort of North and Northwest India, independent Nepal and Afghanistan. And then, and then the Indian Army also includes several 10,000 soldiers uh, from the British Home Army who sort of do a rotation uh, in, in the Indian Army. Um, the Indian Army is officered and commanded by White soldiers, Uh, an Indian soldier can receive an officer's commission, but it is considered a commission granted by the viceroy, who's sort of the executive head of British India, not by the king. And so, an Indian can be technically an officer, but his status is always subordinate, always subordinate to that of a of a white officer who has a king's commission. And this is a force that is designed and equipped for what we might think of as small war, okay? They do internal policing in India. And then they sort of fight these lightning wars, these small wars in places like China in the Boxer Rebellion, uh, in Somalia. Uh, they raid villages in Persia. Uh, they are on again, off again, almost always along the northwest frontier, uh, that borderland with, with, with Afghanistan. And this is, this is what they do. Now, it's important to say that the Indian army does not recruit evenly among the populations of South Asia. Racial thinking in the late 1800s has come to hold that there are martial races in India and there are non-martial races in India. And while British thinking goes, you want the martial races in the army, that's the best fighting stock. And as a result of this thinking, army recruitment policy by 1914, in fact, exclude the vast majority of Indians in favor of select groups and peoples from the northwest of India, mainly Punjab, uh, which is by 1914, sort of the heartland of the Indian army's uh, recruitment effort. And so that's what the army is. That's what it is in 1914. This is an army that does sort of internal policing. It fights small wars. um, And when it is called upon to fight in 1914, well, it's about to fight a war that, frankly, it uh, and really no one is prepared for. It's going to be far more intense and far more ambitious than anything it's undertaken to that point.
0: So what was its role during the Great War? Where where was it deployed and how did it change in its size and composition during that conflict?
1: Sure. Um, The Indian Army deployed, we might just say, everywhere. Indian soldiers fought in France and Belgium. They fought at Gallipoli. They fought in Egypt. They fought in Palestine. They fought in Mesopotamia, in Iraq, and the Persian Gulf. Um, A few Indian soldiers deployed to Central Asia. Others deployed to Persia. They fought in East Africa. There were Indian troops who also deployed to China as part of the uh, joint British and Japanese amphibious operation against Germany's holdings there. They were everywhere um the indian army which again numbered maybe a quarter of a million in 1914 by the time the war is done some 1.5 million indians have served in its rank. at the time of the armistice with germany and ottoman turkey in october november 1918 you have more than 500,000 indian troops deployed overseas most of them in the middle most of them now iran mesopotamia and so they were literally everywhere. In 1914, 24,000 Indian troops deployed to the Western Front. At the time of the the Christmas truce that everybody knows about uh, in France and in Belgium, Indian troops made up one third of the British force fighting there. Indians participated in the Christmas truce. They were there for it, although maybe you didn't see them in that. Remember that 2014 Sainsbury's advert, that 2014 Sainsbury's Christmas advert? which was beautiful and wonderful, but also, you know, one would forget there were Indians there participating in the Christmas truce. Um, They absorbed probably the brunt of the German attack at Ypres that fall in 1914. They participated in British Army offensive operations in 1915. They fought at Neuve chapelle They fought at Luz. And then suddenly at the end of 1915, the Indian infantry were withdrawn and redeployed to fight in the Middle East. Indian cavalry, however, remained in France through early 1918. They fought at the Somme. Uh, They fought in offensive operations in 1917, so they were there in France. Um, Their second major role, beyond sort of providing critical manpower on the Western Front at a time when the British were desperate for any body they could get, beyond that, they also provide critical services to sort of safeguarding imperial installations around the globe. So the Suez Canal, for example, and Persian oil fields, for example. One wonders how the British could have fought the war or mobilized their global resources without that supply line and without those oil fields secured. Well, the Indian Army did the work of securing those. Their biggest and most ambitious operation, though, were in the Middle East. And In the Middle East, you can say the Indian Army was an army of conquest. Now, Indian Army operations in the Middle East began humbly enough, if you will, uh, before the close of 1914. Um, Campaigning in 1915 led commanders in the region to believe that the road to Baghdad was open. And in 1915, at a time when the war is not going well for the Allies really anywhere else, of course, the Western Front is stalemate. Gallipoli is going. There is this belief that capturing Baghdad will play well for Indian audiences, for colonial audiences, and sort of give the British Empire a real shot in the arm at a time when they could use one. And so an entire division of the Indian Army, the Indian Sixth Division, we're talking here about 12,000 to 15,000 men, mostly Indian, some British. Uh, An entire division of the army goes storming up the Tigris and Euphrates rivers towards Baghdad they crash into the Turkish army south of the city at a place called Tessaphon, and they're turned back. And they dig in at a little town called Kut, and there withstand a siege until 1916, when they are forced to surrender to the Turkish army. And it's really sort of seen as this low point uh, in the Indian army's operations. It's really quite seen as quite a humiliating defeat. A whole investigation results from um, renewed attention. Is given to the army's operation in Mesopotamia. The army is re equipped, it is resupplied, it is given fresh reinforcements, it is given new leadership. And in 1917 and 1918, the Indian army really emerges as a uh, highly capable uh, conquering force uh, in the region. So in 1917, the Indian army captures Baghdad, and thereafter, its soldiers sort of fan out across the northern Iraq countryside. In 1918, Uh, The Indian Army spearheads the conquest of Palestine and Syria. And by the close of October and early November 1918, it is the Indian Army that knocks Turkey out of the war. Uh, So that's that's what they did. They, They were everywhere. Indian troops were everywhere. And the Indian Army's operations were
0: were ambitious. Now, you've commented that the sort of volunteer or the Indian Army was an all-volunteer army during uh, up till 1914. Now, were men who joined in or during the First World War, were they volunteers or was there any type of conscription? And if they were volunteers, why did they enlist in a British colonial army?
1: Yeah, Um, great questions there, very important. Um, Why join the army? Uh, Probably three reasons, Uh, decent pay, uh, the promise of a pension, uh, and, and we shouldn't overlook the prestige that comes with it. So pay, pension, and prestige. Those, some, co- some combination of those three things uh, will lure uh, young men into uniform. Most of the soldiers who serve in the Indian army, as combatants anyway, most of them come from the peasantry. These are poor people, and the army pays, and it is a way for one to keep one's family solvent, Uh, in an otherwise remorseless uh, global marketplace. Um, So so the army pays. The Indian army never resorts to conscription during the war. But in 1917, and especially in 1918, the demand for Indian manpower exceeds the army's abilities to recruit troops uh, in the ways it used to before the war. Before the war, The Indian army could rely on, say, anywhere from 10,000 to maybe 15,000, maybe more, but the army could rely on maybe 10,000 to 15,000 recruits in a given year. And before the war, that's fine. That'll do. Suddenly in 1918, the government of India, the British led government of India, calls for 500,000 fresh recruits just that year. And Punjab alone. Is asked to furnish 200,000 of those troops. Now, ostensibly, this is not going to be a conscript army, but a lot of the recruits who are brought forth that year, um, a lot of them are definitely the product of coercion. The government of India really does everything it can to turn the screws on anyone and everyone who's been holding out. Um, The Punjab's lieutenant governor, a fellow named Michael O'Dwyer, who is who is, to say the least, not uh, not Indian nationalists' favorite. Um, he uses the coercive leverage he has to basically impress upon Punjab's rural communities that those who provide recruits will be reco- uh, will be rewarded, uh, and those who don't will be overlooked uh, when the state sort of doles out uh, rewards at war's end. Um, and it's actually Gandhi who, after the war in 19. 19- Nineteen sort of investigates the government's and the army's recruiting practices, and it's Gandhi who uncovers sort of wide-scale coercive practices to get men into uniform, to make people who otherwise wanted to have nothing to do with the war uh, to get them to put on a uniform. Um, so, so the army, the army, you, okay, yeah, fine. It's it's an all volunteer army. Um, but the troops who are wearing the Indian Army's uniform by 1918 and by 1919, if they'd had a say, a greater say, uh, many of them would not have been there.
0: So how did, the, how did the British colonial authorities and the leaders of the Indian Army view their South Asian soldiers? And how did their perception shape the experience and life of the average uh, combatant uh, or soldier during the war? Sure,
1: that that, and that's an important question. Um, And let me offer a few responses. My first response is that 1857 is always, always in the rearview mirror. And rightly or wrongly, one of the lessons that the British recruiters and the government of India, one of the lessons they have internalized by 1914, is that the Indian soldier must always be regarded as a mercenary. At the end of the day, and what that means is that his loyalty cannot be taken. Um, A wonderful scholar, Gajendra Singh, uh, reminds us in his book that Indian soldiers, from the perspective of their commanders, Indian soldiers were not men to be ignored. Uh, They were men to be surveilled. They were to be censored. Um, The British wanted to keep tabs on what sometimes they referred to as the mentality of the sepoys. There's this lingering doubt, always, 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 this sense that the loyalty of, this, of these men should not be taken for granted. My second response then is there's, there's sort of this colonial paternalism woven into much of this, um, this belief that however capable an Indian soldier might be, um, he is lacking without the leadership of his white officer. And and there's sort of this cult of the white officer, if you will. Um, this belief that the officer, the white British officer, is the glue that holds this army together. Um, and so there's there's this paternalism that that runs runs through all of it. Um, and this belief that absent good officers and good officering, um, this this is not an army that you can rely on. So how do these ideologies? How does this thinking, how does it shape experience? Well, we, we see this play out in different ways uh, on, in different places across the globe during World War I. For example, um, there is this belief that the psyche of the Indian soldier uh, is somehow fragile. Uh, there's this fear that um, if he is overexposed to the rigors of combat, and especially combat in an industrial war, which is what you have on the Western, um, he's prone to snap he's prone to run amuck is a term that they'll use and this is this is racist thinking here guiding it but but a consequence of that is that when indian soldiers start exhibiting the signs of you know what what doctors even are not yet calling shell shock in 1914 and 1915 when soldiers start exhibiting uh, the symptoms of profound tra- mental trauma um, they will actually receive treatment for shell shock uh, before British soldiers are ever receiving treatment for shell shock. So their hospitals in France and their hospitals in England uh, have wards for shell shocked patients. Now, who's to say if the treatments are any good, right? If, if doctors are actually treating uh, traumatized men or if they're just, you know, or if they're just sort of treating symptoms in, in the hopes that they can get men back into the line again. Um, but but there is this concern with the psychological fitness of these men um, leading to leading to uh healthcare decisions and healthcare policies that the british soldiers will not have until until later in the war another way that British thinking shapes experience. Is in that example I cited in the Middle East. So in 1915, an entire division, about 12 to 15,000 troops, mostly Indian but also British, uh, an entire division of the Indian Army goes marching up the Tigris and Euphrates River, uh, destination Baghdad, and, and the army is checked at a battle called Teisifon. And it is at this moment that that army's commander, a fellow named General Townshend, he has to decide what to do next, and what he decides to do is retreat a hundred miles downriver and dig in at this town called Cut and hope that his force can endure a siege long enough uh, to then be rescued. It turns out that was the wrong call. That was a bad decision. And General Townshend made one bad decision after another. Why did he make so many bad decisions? Probably because he looks at his force. He sees that after the Battle of Ctesiphon, A lot of his white British officers are out of action and have been killed. And he concludes that his Indian troopers lacking uh, competent and qualified white leadership, well, they're not capable of carrying out the kinds of maneuvers that would have at the end of the day saved a lot of lives. And so he makes one bad tactical decision after another uh, that will result in the loss of an entire division of the Indian army. And so, so I, hope, I hope those answer your question, those examples.
0: So turning to morale and discipline, what was the sort of uh, disciplinary uh, situation like in the army? And what motivated uh, South Asian soldiers to actually fight, serve and endure the rigors of combat for the British Empire? Great question.
1: Um, so the Indian Army arrives on the Western Front in October 1914, just in time for the Battle of Ypres. And it is fair to say that that battle is a real shock to the system. As it is for everybody, right? I think it's important to state that nobody is ready for what happens on the Western Front that fall. Um, In East Africa, at any given moment, half of the army is sick. Um, And in Mesopotamia in 1916, British commanders send the Indian Third Division and the Indian Seventh Division into the field, into combat, before. The army's medical equipment has even been unloaded from ships at the port in Basra. So under these kinds of conditions, uh, yeah, sometimes morale isn't very good. Um, uh, and, 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 and in some isolated cases, uh, one could argue it breaks. But what is also quite striking is, is the fact that for all that Indian troops are asked to endure, during the war, the army otherwise holds together. Uh, It it does not come unglued, it does not come undone. Um, The capture of Baghdad then in 1917, from the evidence that we have available, and there's not much, but from the evidence that we do have available, the capture of Baghdad in 1917 is a real sort of exciting moment uh, for the troops who get to participate in that. Um, The capture of uh, Damascus, the capture of Beirut uh, in 1918, Um, these are real sort of high points, especially for the Indian cavalry soldiers who participated in offensive operations there. Um, So morale, like it could in any army, uh, it ebbed and it flowed uh, based on conditions on the ground. Um, The Indian trooper was oftentimes subjected to harsher discipline than white soldiers. This is especially the case in Europe. Um, For example, uh, an Indian soldier fighting in France in 1915, can be flogged by his commanding officer if his officer suspects that the soldier had had plans, had had thoughts about soliciting a white woman for sex. Just the suspicion that an Indian soldier had been thinking about that could result in corporal punishment. Uh, And this at a time when the Indian army um, has has decided that, that British troops can't it's white soldiers cannot be punished in that manner. Um, So so its discipline can can be different. Uh, It can be harsher because there is a real sort of racial and gendered anxiety uh, that follows the soldiers, especially when they deploy to France. And then sometimes when they're hospitalized in England, there is this fear of what might happen um, if South Asian soldiers are permitted to freely uh, intercourse with European Uh, white populations, what motivated them? You know, what what keeps a soldier at his post from nineteen fourteen to nineteen fifteen to nineteen sixteen and into the later years of the war? Well, probably still that lure of pay, pension, and um and one reason why I suspect that this might be true is because although desertions from the Indian Army were rare, they did happen. But when you look at soldiers who deserted from their posts and say this happened in in March of 1915, when 24 South Asian soldiers deserted from their posts on the Western Front, they deserted to the German trenches. Uh, Desertions did happen sometimes in the Middle East. When these things happened, uh, the soldiers who deserted, uh, in the case in France in 1915, the soldiers who deserted lived outside of British India. Um, so the example I'm citing here is is on the night of March 2nd, March 3rd, 1915, along the Western Front, 24 soldiers um, left their posts and deserted to the German trenches. These 24 men were from independent Afghanistan. Now, a lot of them are veterans of the Indian Army. They've served some of them more than a decade by the time World War I breaks out. And they've been fighting on the Western Front since 1914, and some of them have been in the thick of it. They are decorated soldiers. Um, in March 1915, they see the clear signs that a big offensive operation is coming. And they gamble, I think, they gamble that they can safely desert to the German trenches because the British colonial state in South Asia will be unable to reach their families um, and, and, and harm their families as, as sort of a repercussion because their families live beyond the reaches of, of the British Raj. But it's a great question. It's a great question. And I think it's also important to keep in mind, too, that by 1918, a lot of the men who are fighting in the Indian Army, well, they weren't there fighting in 1914 or 1915. They are newer recruits
0: and they haven't been in the lines quite so long. So let's turn to, to Indian Army prisoners of war. Now, what was their experience and how many were there? Uh, what was their experience? The short answer is it depends. How many were there?
1: Oh, probably about 1,000. Taken by the Germans on the Western Front, um, at least ten thousand uh, taken in the fighting in Mesopotamia. And how did their experience uh, compare? Well, here you go. When the war began, Germany tried to foment anti-colonial rebellion throughout the empires of its enemy. And Germany has set its eye- set its eyes on British India. And Germany has sort of convinced itself, its foreign office has convinced itself that If appealed to in the right way, uh, Britain's South Asian soldiers fighting on the Western Front, their loyalties could be turned. And so what the German government does is it sets up a special propaganda camp. It's a prisoner of war camp, but it's a propaganda camp. It's just south of Berlin. And soldiers captured on the Western Front from the Indian Army, but also uh, French North African prisoners of war uh, and Muslim Russian prisoners of war, they're all sort of sent to this camp. And the hope is that by some combination of anti-colonial nationalist appeals or sort of pan-Islamic jihadist appeals, uh, these men can be persuaded to take off the uniforms of their colonial masters, if you will, and put on the uniform of, of the Ottoman Turkish army and then march off and help bring, help bring anti-colonial war uh, to, to the British, to the French, to the, to the Russian empires. That's, that's the German scheme. And so when Indian troopers are captured by the Germans on the Western Front, they are sent to this camp south of Berlin and subjected to a barrage of anti-British, anti-colonial, um, sometimes pan-Islamic propaganda. It's not altogether clear that this propaganda is too effective. Um, of the 1,000 or so Indian prisoners held at this camp, About 45 of them decide to take up arms against the British and they're given guns and they're given money and they're given Ottoman uniforms and they're put on trains and redeployed to Constantinople and to Turkey and the Middle East. And from there, most of them vanish and they disappear. And and when you look at the records held in the offices, uh, when you look at the records held in the German foreign office, where a lot of these guys sort of show up. It's really interesting to watch them figure out that the Germans are so eager to foment rebellion that if you just tell them what they want to hear, they'll basically write your ticket home for you. And so the Germans send some 45 Indian troops off to the Middle East, hopeful that this will you know, be the spark that leads to the end of British rule in South Asia. And, and it just, it just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. Some of the troops, their, their stated intention of bringing rebellion to, to the gates of India, well, some of them to a limited extent seem seem interested in that. One soldier, his name is Mir Mask, does show up in, in the palace of the Emir of Afghanistan in 1915, and he's talking a big game. But most of them just sort of disappear. And at one point or another, during the war years, they show up again. Um, some of them are in this party crossing Persia, just trying to get home. And they're apprehended. And that's the end of their road for them. Some of them sort of spend time in Constantinople uh, and then find their way back to Berlin uh, and spend the post-war years in Berlin. Um, others just navigate uh, a war-torn world entirely on their own and make it home again in one piece. And so, and so that's their story. That's their story. Um, by 1916, by 1917, the Germans have sort of figured out that their schemes of spreading anti-colonial rebellion by way of captured Indian soldiers, they, they kind of give up on this. And a lot of the troops that they were holding prisoner at this prisoner of war camp, they're sort of scattered across various prisoner of war camps in in, uh, in the Kaiserreich. And that's that's kind of it. And then at the end of the war, they're, they're, they're repatriated uh, or they're not. In Mesopotamia, then you've got these 10,000 or so Indian soldiers who are captured by the Ottoman Turkish army at Kut in April of 1916. And now they are in the hands of the enemy. And the question is what happens to them? And the answer is that a lot of them meet a very terrible fate. The Turkish empire has done nothing to prepare uh, for these guys. There's no propaganda camp like the Germans have set up. And what, what happens is really just sort of a series of death marches is what happens. 10,000 Indian troops or so are captured at cut in uh, April 1916. Many of them are already starving after enduring a four-month-long siege. And they then proceed on a 100-mile forced march to Baghdad. And then once in Baghdad, Baghdad, there's a couple days to rest and recuperate. And then they are sent on forced marches across the deserts of Syria to the, um, uh, to, uh, they're sent on forced marches across the deserts of Syria, sometimes to nowhere uh, and sometimes to, to Eastern Anatolia, to Eastern Turkey um, and, to, and to Lebanon to sort of work on railroads and work on infrastructure there. And, and many of them just drop dead uh, along the way. Um, and it's really, it's really sort of a nightmarish, a nightmarish, uh, a nightmarish uh, th- these are death marches. These are death marches. That is what they are. Um, and from from the accounts that we have from survivors, uh, even the survivors will tell you, you know, it, it, it was never really clear what what the end goal was, what the destination was, what the purpose of this was beyond just cruelty. Uh, and so, so very different, very different experiences were being captured in France to being captured in in the Middle East.
0: If we consider the Indian Army as a whole, how militarily effective do you think it was during the war? And I know that's quite difficult to to evaluate, but assuming we can agree what military effectiveness means, what would you say um, for their contribution?
1: I would say when well led and well supplied, um, they are effective. Um, I would say that in 1914, uh, they effectively absorbed the brunt of the German offensives in Belgium and Northern France. Uh, that's, that's what they did in 1914. Um, I would say they effectively secured uh, the Suez Canal. They effectively secured um, the Persian oil fields. The British Navy cannot wage the war without those oil fields. The British empire cannot wage the war without you know, the sort of free flow of goods through the Suez Canal. Uh, so they were effective there. And in 1917 and 1918, the Indian army was an effective army of conquest in the Middle East. Uh, conquered Mesopotamia, conquered Palestine. Um, so so I would argue at the end of the day, the Indian Army was effective in World War I uh, and was crucial uh, and vital to
0: the British Empire's war efforts. So turning to the post-war world, what was the domestic, political, and social impact during the interwar period of Indian, sol- Indian, sol- Indian Army soldiers' service in the Indian Army during the First World War?
1: Um, it is significant. And it is significant because um, Indian nationalists, who by and large are excluded from the ranks of the Indian Army, you know, the, the, the college educated Indian middle class, they, they are not permitted to fight. Nevertheless, they applauded the Indian Army's deployment to various battlefronts in this war, and they really sort of hitched their cause to Indian soldier. The, the desire of the moderates uh, among, among the Indian nationalists, their, their desire really is, is dominion status. That's what they want. They want what Australia has, what Canada has. It's not about independence yet uh, for, for India's And And what the nationalists fervently hope is that if Indian soldiers equip themselves well on the battlefield, the reward at war's end will be improved standing for india politically within and as part of uh, the british empire and as the war goes on and as the butcher's bill gets greater and as you know montague offers his declaration in 1917 that you know responsible self-government for india this this is sort of the goal right expectations and aspirations really are, are heightened by 1917, by 1918. Um, so it's, it's interesting because Indian nationalists, they are rooting for the Indian army during the war. They're rooting for these guys. In 1918, uh, Gandhi goes on tour as a pro-war, pro-empire propagandist, encouraging young men to go serve in the Indian army, because, he argues, among other things, this is how India will secure the reward that he says it is due, right? Self-government, along the lines of that enjoyed by Australians, South Africans, Canadians. But then the fighting ends in 1918, and the government of India announces that wartime restrictions on civil liberties are going to continue into peacetime and these are these are the the Rolat acts of, uh, of 1919 and this this just strikes a nerve and it is it is this announcement by the government of India that that sort of wartime restrictions are going to continue into peacetime this is what sparks uh, Gandhi's first nationwide general strike uh, which begins in March and April of 1919 and as crowds of demonstrators, um, shut down entire cities, uh, Delhi, Lahore, Bombay, among others. Um, it is the Indian army that is deployed to Indian cities to quell what the government of India sees at this point as a significant uprising. Um, one that seems to have all the hallmarks of 1857, uh, written all over. It. And when Indian troops deployed to Indian cities in 1919, uh, they obey the commands of their officers and they fire on crowds. So Indian troops will fire on crowds in Delhi and in Bombay and in Lahore. Uh, they will fire, fire on crowds in, uh, in Ahmedabad. Uh, airplanes, Indian Army airplanes will strafe and bomb civilians. And then, of course, there's Amritsar uh, in, in April of 1919 when the, when the commander there, uh, General Dyer, uh, orders the Indian soldiers under his command, orders them to open fire uh, on an unarmed crowd in a crowded marketplace, and he tells them to keep firing for a good ten minutes. Right, um, General Dyer says says kind of famously after the fact, after this this massacre, uh, he says, "quote For me, the battlefield of France or Amritsar is the same," and that 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 says a lot. That says a lot. And and for Gandhi and for for many. Uh, of the Of the nationalist stripe this this is the this is the turning this is the turning point whereas during the war and before the war, someone like Gandhi will situate himself as sort of the loyal opposition to the colonial state, the loyal opposition um, after Amritsar, after the shootings, after these demonstrations are brutally suppressed by the Indian army and by Indian army soldiers after that um Gandhi and and the Indian National Congress will will assume a new stance and that's the stance of non-cooperation right and this is this is really where you know, the stakes have been raised um, and that's that that is perhaps a story for another day as things get into the 1920s but but this is definitely a turning point this is definitely a turning point and it is the actions of the Indian Army and Indian Army soldiers in the immediate post-war months um, that really put uh, India's nationalist movement and the colonial state
0: on this, irreconcilable uh, collision course. And my final question is, where can people firstly get the book and learn more about your work? Where can they get the book? All right. So the book is, there it is. It's Indian Arm, uh, Indian
1: soldiers in World War One: race and representation in an imperial war. Uh, the book is published with the University of Nebraska Press. Uh, where can one get it? Oh, I don't know. I assume all the places where one can get books these days. Um, I don't know. Do I do I do I make a plug for Jeff Bezos here in Amazon? Um, I guess so. Um, but, but the University of Nebraska Press, they're, they're wonderful. It was a privileged. Um, they were just they were great. I, I can only say great things. Um, but yeah, that's the book. Indian Soldiers in World War One, Race and Representation in an Imperial War. Andrew, thank you very much for your time. Tom, thank you. It's been a pleasure.